With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another exciting edition of The Robinson Show, everybody. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. And on today's program, we have former track and field and bobsledding star Lauren Williams. She'll talk about her athletic career and her new one as a financial coach. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Robinson Show. Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com. Welcome back to The Robinson Show, everybody. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. We have the latest and greatest in the world of sports. And this next person that I'm interviewing has certainly been not just the latest, but one of the greatest and not one, but two sports. That's right. This young lady has been phenomenal in all aspects of her career and her life thus far as well, from track and field to bobsledding to now financial planning. She's doing it in a major way. Ladies and gentlemen, I have Lauren Williams on the program. Hey, Lauren, welcome to The Robinson Show. Ed, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be on. All right, you're welcome. Before we get into what you're currently doing and the bobsledding and the track and field, tell me how did the journey all start? Well, some people would say, or my dad would tell you that it was at the Carnegie Science Center back when I was a little kid. There was a Flojo hologram. I started to race that hologram, and I didn't do anything else at the Science Center all day. And so that's when he knew that I had talent in track and field and thought he should get me in something more organized. My mom, on the other hand, will say that one day I got home faster than the family German Shepherd, and that was the moment she knew that I needed to be in organized sports. And it kind of just tumbled from that point forward where I was competing in track and field. I didn't really love it. I loved playing other sports. Basketball was my favorite, but that just kept me very active and, and made sure that was one of the things that I was doing. And then in college, I well, in high school, I realized that I would have the opportunity to go to college because I was doing well in track and field. And I knew that I didn't have a college fund saved up and there wasn't anything in particular that was going to help me um, outside of getting an academic scholarship. And then these letters started to come in the mail and I was being recruited for track and field. And I said, this sounds wonderful. Like you guys want to pay for my education just to run in a circle that I was already happy running in anyway. I'm, I'm all over this. So I took advantage of the opportunity, went to the University of Miami, uh, to tell my coach and what really wanted to repay my coach for the opportunity of getting a free education. And so I think that's where my athleticism really started to bud. Now, before we get into your collegiate career at the University of Miami, you were born and raised in suburban Pittsburgh. Now, when I think about Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is a football town and a hockey town, but Pittsburgh is primarily a, a blue-collar working-class town where people love their sports, particularly they love their Steelers. Was track and field uh, something that was popular in Pittsburgh, or was it just an afterthought? It was definitely an afterthought. You're right. Um, 
in Pittsburgh, the Steelers rule. Um, football is really a big deal, and you know all age groups from the Pee Wees, the Mighty Mice, all that kind of stuff. Um, that that is a sport people are focused on, and this was just something that I think track and field probably kept stayed in existence because football players needed something to do um, in the off season. So um, I was fortunate to find a sport that worked really well for me um, and started and to bring some notoriety to it. After you had a successful career in the Pittsburgh area and from from AAU down to high school, you landed at the University of Miami. Now, I can imagine the, the University of Miami is one of the top athletic programs in the country, and certainly track and field is no exception to the rule. So tell me a little bit about the level of competition at the U and how it raised your game to the next level. It's funny that you asked that because uh, we were just talking about football, and football played a huge role in, I think, taking me to the next level while I was at the University of Miami. I, I started to attend the university in the fall of 2001, and um, anybody who knows, like our second set of kind of golden years, if you will, uh, we made it to the Rose Bowl as a, at my freshman year in college, and then the sophomore year we made it to the Fiesta Bowl and lost. So two back-to-back national championship opportunities happened for our football team. But the energy that they had was electric, and it transferred all over the athletic department. And so I think it contributed quite a bit to, you know, my work ethic, uh, the way that I handled myself, the way that I set goals, and, you know, the way that I took on the responsibility of being a, um, a productive Miami Hurricane versus just, you know, going there, getting my education, and, and moving on. The energy really uh, pushed everybody in the athletic department to reach their full potential um, and, and kind of stay up to that level that the football team was uh, setting, that bar. Let's stay in with the athletic department at the university for a moment. We hear a lot of stories about the athletes not being prepared for not just their professional careers, but just for life period after athletics. Do you think the U did an effective job of preparing you for life after the university and going into your professional track career or whatever you wanted to do in life? One of the things I think, you know, there's the stereotype suntan U, they call the University of Miami. But uh, we're one of the best schools in the state of Florida, and we've climbed the list um, for uh, colleges ranked in the country. Our academics are stellar, uh, and we've gone above and beyond to create an environment that is really focused on learning. Um, I felt very well prepared with the education I got from the University of Miami uh, to go out into the world and, and, like you said, kind of become a productive citizen. Um, And I think they also... Uh, have spent a lot of time and it. it's getting new it's, it's kind of a new thing this life skills program they're happening at different colleges and, and we have one University of Miami is no exception uh, where we're, we are focusing on you know what are the skills that someone needs to survive off the playing field and like you said it just survive at life so from budgeting to proper etiquette to resume writing all those different things um, those tools are now in place for us to be able to like you said transition well from sport to life after sport. After graduating from the University of Miami, you begin your professional track and field career, and you had a lot of highlights in your track career. At the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens, you were a silver medalist in the 100 meters. This was your first Olympic experience. Tell the listening audience out there, what was that like? Because we know that the Olympics for two and a half weeks is a global I call it a global carnival, a global Mardi Gras, and the world is watching you. So tell me. What was that first Olympic experience like and to come out winning a silver medal in the 100 meters? I was kind of like a deer in headlights in 2004. I was 20 years old. Um, I had no uh, intention or, you know, real goal of going to the Olympics earlier that year. 
my goal actually was to win the national championships in college. And, you know, a lot of people were like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, yeah, I had no idea. You know, I knew the Olympics was happening. I wasn't oblivious to, you know, it being an Olympic year, but I didn't set my sights on, on, on the Olympics. I was just really trying to get to the finish line first at the NCAA championship. And I think in working toward that goal and frequently when you're working toward any goal, when you're working hard toward it, doors open and opportunities come um, above and beyond the one thing that you were going after. And so that's exactly what the case was for me. I won the national championship. It happened to be the second fastest time in the world so far that year. And immediately I was the you know, fastest American, 20 years old, and having to turn my focus to the Olympic trials, which were just a couple weeks later. And so in really thinking about, um, like, how do I do this? How do I figure all this out? I had to just kind of like roll with it and, you know, embrace what that opportunity was. So in 2004, I was kind of like a deer in headlights. I had nothing to lose, which I think was something wonderful, you know, to show up there, do my best and represent my country to the best of my ability. And that took some of the pressure off versus being a professional athlete and having to do this all the time, you know, for a living to make your sponsors happy, et cetera, et cetera. After you won that silver medal in the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, and you had a great season to follow up that. And then I know in track and field or in life in general, things don't always go as planned. In 2008 at the Beijing Olympics, you were involved in the 4x100-meter relay, and there was a, an exchange that didn't turn out as, as well as uh, you would have liked or a lot of the uh, Americans would have liked to have happened. You had a, a mix-up with your teammate, Tori Edwards. For those that don't know about what happened, I know about what happened, but to the listening audience out there, can you kind of go back to 2008 and tell the people what happened between you and Tori and how the exchange didn't work out? Yeah, um, and so at any given point, you know, you put four American sprinters together and we're probably going to be on, on track to break a world record. And so uh, the Olympics is an opportunity to showcase our best talent, uh, like you said, uh, uh, go after world records and um, obviously win Olympic gold medals. But uh, the chemistry is a really important component of that. And if you don't get to the finish line, <laughs> there's no chance of you winning that world record. And so, yeah, Tori and I um, mixed up and, and didn't get the stick in my hand. And the stick actually ended up on the ground. And I just remember 2004 and how it didn't go well for us then and walking through that stadium to the finish line. And I said, no, not again. So I turned around, I picked up the stick um, and headed toward the finish line, you know, thinking maybe we could, uh, you know, uh, appeal or I could still beat somebody and, and get back in. And uh, it just didn't happen like that. But I was, I was determined to run to the finish line instead of walk. Let's stay in 2008 in Beijing for a moment. What were the practices like for that relay? Was everything going well? Was there like kind of like a communication breakdown or what everyone was uh, with the mindset of uh, all systems go, we're ready to go, and whatever happens, happens? Let's, let's just go for it? The communication was very good between Tori and I, and so I'm not sure what went wrong on that actual day, but if I had to attribute it to something, I would say the general energy of the relay was off. And so, you know, when thinking about the 4 by one relays, you're putting three world-class sprinters that at any given moment could be, you know, gold, silver, and, and bronze medalists because we are the best in the world um, together. And we're not together all year long. We train in different places. We train with different coaches. We train all over the country. And we have different personalities. So putting that together in a very competitive environment, chemistry is something that's really important that you have to work through and, and figure out. And I don't think we did the best job as an as a overall team in doing that. So um, there might have been a cloud over the, the head of Tori and I, although it wasn't any contention between her and I directly. 
um, I think the overall energy of the team might have contributed to um, the actual botched exchange. Well, I tell you what, thank God for multiple chances because it didn't work out in 2004 in Athens and it didn't work out in Beijing in 2018, but it definitely worked out for you on the third time in 2012 at the Olympics in London. You ran the anchor leg once again in the 4x100-meter relay and you what your team wound up winning the gold medal. Now, I have to say, the team that you were a part of was outstanding. Tell me, what was that energy like on that team? Because certainly you had went through a rough patch in Athens and in Beijing. So London was destined for you to, to get that gold medal. Yeah. So in, in London, I took the approach of, you know, being the veteran on the team, uh, making sure that we collaborate, that we did get that chemistry right, exactly what I was saying, and, and you know, with the part that didn't go well in 2008. So I was very focused on, you know, I know that this is a competitive group. I know that, you know, one has to compete against the other for the 100 meters, but uh, this relay, we've really got to come together. And, you know, having that experience, like I said, under my belt of two failed attempts uh, really gave me the leadership skills I needed to be able to make sure that everybody could communicate and, and get on the same page and, and do the best, do the job to the best of their ability. Um, so, yeah, I just did the best I could, like you said, between Allison and Tiana and Bianca and Jenaba and myself uh, to make sure that we had great energy to be able to get to the finish line first. So you're able to get that gold medal in the relay in 2012 in London. So we transition over from track and field to a sport that's uh, somewhat unfamiliar here in the United States, bobsledding. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I've always been a huge fan of the Olympics and especially the Winter Olympics. And bobsledding has always been my, one of my favorite sports to watch. And you had the opportunity to win a silver medal at the 2014 Games in Sochi alongside your teammate, Ilana Myers. Tell me, what was it like teaming up with her and what was the training behind you to prepare to win this silver medal? Yeah, bobsled was really fun. Um, it was probably the best six, of my, six months of my life to date so far. I'm sure the world has a lot more to offer me, but it was just really an amazing experience. Uh, I was challenged in ways I have never been challenged, um, forced to work in a, a team environment that is so unique because this is, once again, similar to the relay where you're competing against one another, but you also have to work together. And so for me to show up uh, six months before the Olympic Games and not have any clue what bobsled was, how to participate, you know, how to be good at it. And the other people that I was competing against to have to teach me how to be awesome at this sport so that I could go out there and compete to the best of my ability was so interesting and a, a really wonderful opportunity. It was, it was just really, really nice to see people come together for what was best for Team USA versus what's best for themselves. Um, and, you know, some people have to sit on the sideline at the end of the day because I was chosen, you know, over someone else. But those were the same people that prepared me and just how grateful uh, you could be to someone that you defeated. Um, and so it's just so many life lessons that were taught to me during that six months of competing in bobsled. And it was a really great experience. Let's stay on the sport of bobsledding for a moment. For those that had never watched bobsledding before, how did you explain it to them? For those that had never watched, how do you explain it? Did you have did you have to do a lot of explaining as far as the rules and the positions and what goes into this competition? Um, I did as much as I could, but I was learning as as I was going as well. So as I as I was learning things, I was trying to you know dis dis display that to others. 
And then also um, I try to write a blog, you know, fairly frequently to, to kind of update my fans in the track and field world on, you know, how bobsled was going for me, what it was like. And it was it was pretty cool to be able to do that as a way to be able to convey uh, my experiences to others. Uh, but I think the, the biggest thing was just knowing and understanding, like, the feeling. Like you said, initially, what did it feel like? It felt like being thrown off the a cliff in a washing machine. And people are like, what? And I'm like, yes, it's really terrible. Um, but the more you learn the track, the more you start to understand your surroundings and what you should be doing, the easier the ride becomes on you because you're a lot more aware of your surroundings, you're tuned in, and so your anxiety level can go down. Now that you've had your bobsledding experience, do you feel like you've become more of an advocate for African-Americans participating in winter sports? Um, I, I think that you, you always are given a platform that you, you sometimes don't realize in the moment is a platform. And so, you know, some people said, like, how does it feel to be a part of history? And I was like, history, what does that mean? And, you know, I didn't know going into the finals that I was going to be the first American woman to earn a medal in the summer and the Winter Olympics. Um, and I would have been the first, I think, overall to ever get, you know, some gold in both if I had, you know, managed to get uh, um, a gold at, in bobsled. But um, and then, you know, I, I returned home and like you said, all the different media outlets and things like that started to say, you know, she's black history. And, you know, not I'm not just American history. I'm also black history. And so all these different platforms that you are awarded um, by simply trying to reach your full potential and be the best person you can be um, has been really amazing. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a, a heavy load to carry. But as long as you're always trying to do what's right. Um, it's an awesome one to be able to say that, um, you know, I can inspire girls uh, worldwide and I can inspire uh, African-Americans worldwide and, you know, I can inspire Americans um, all over the country. So um, it's just neat to be able to, to be a person in that position. Rightfully so. Now, you finished your athletic career by winning the silver medal in the Winter Olympics in bobsledding. And this goes into our next topic in the podcast is that we talk, you you run a financial planning company called Worth Winning. Now, we know, Lauren, that a lot of athletes, not just in track and field and bobsledding, but athletes, regardless of what they currently play or what they've played, they've always run into problems with finances and making the proper uh, financial decisions. Tell me, what was your platform or what was your, your premise behind starting Worth Winning? It was exactly as you said, Ed. You know, uh, athletes are frequently preyed upon. Um, they don't have a lot of resources available to them. Um, a lot of people uh, enable them in the sense that they say, you know, you just go out there on the field of play. You, you focus on football. You focus on track and field. Uh, you just focus on the sports side and somebody else to worry about everything else. And I think that's the worst thing you can do for an athlete is enable them and leave them in the dark as it pertains to education and in particular financial literacy. Um, nationwide, we are having a problem with financial literacy. Everybody is going to get a job at some point. Everybody is going to need to know how to organize their finances. And this information is so important in the world of an athlete because you kind of get the lottery winning where you're going to earn a lot more money in a short period of time than you are likely to earn over the, you know, the rest of your life. Um, and so being responsible with that money, knowing what to do with it, knowing how to stretch it out and realize that your career is not going to last forever, but this could set you up really well um, for years to come, uh, is something that always falls through the cracks. And I think that, you know, the, some of the advisors and well, a lot of the advisors in the industry see them as an investment commission or, you know, just 
let me invest and do my part of the job and I'm not worried about this person as an athlete or as, you know, as an individual. I just want to get the, the money that they have and get my share of the money that they have. Um, when really good financial advisors, good financial planners are focused on um, giving literacy to those athletes so that they can be well-equipped to save and be responsible and take good care of their earnings and, you know, not buy things that are frivolous. And it really takes taking the time out to understand the individual, what background they come from, you know, what uh, stressors they have as, as it pertains to family and um, other people that are counting on them. And, and spending time setting up a system so that they don't fail. Um, and I think advisors just don't do that. They just say, yeah, 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 they see the big dollar signs, they take them under um, the assets under management, but without the key foundation of a budget and, you know, simple literacy things and understanding, like, what your monthly spending can look like and what it should look like uh, and, you know, like the background of where that person's coming from, uh you are going to set yourself up for failure. And eventually that athlete is going to be coming back to you asking for that money that you invested because they've run out of the money in their bank account. So it's just been really a thing that I'm passionate about being able to tell people uh, and being able to help athletes directly in addition to other young professionals uh, help organize their finances. Did you have a similar experience to where you trusted someone with your finances and Things didn't go the, the way you hoped, or what was this just something again? Like you said, this is just something you want to do to help athletes or young professionals out. Um, no, I did. I also had a similar experience. So um, I had two financial advisors during my career, and neither one uh, really was invested in me as a person. They never helped me understand, like you said, the basics. Um, you know, can I move out from living with my college roommate? If so, should I buy or should I rent? Well, how much can I afford based on my earnings right now? Um, you know, navigating the car buying process. Like, those are all simple things that we all have to go through in life. But, you know, when you got a, a large sum of money, you don't know what you can and you can't afford. Or, like you said, how much should I be setting aside for a rainy day or, you know, my life after sport? There, there was no real instruction on that. There was, you know, give me this amount so that I can invest it for you, which don't get me wrong. Investing is not a bad thing. You know, I invest on behalf of my clients as well. But investing is not the only piece of a sound financial plan and, and setting a sound financial uh, foundation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did not get the services that I need. And when I was asking questions, uh, they were always answers that were kind of like, oh, go ask someone else, call the realtor, you know, go to the car dealership. And it's like, uh, we know that those people don't have our best interests at heart. So I, I was thinking that the advisor was going to provide me some ob objective advice to be able to save my money and, you know, make the most of it. Uh, and I just kind of got fed up with what I saw those two advisors do for me. And as I asked my friends um, what they were doing and how they were managing things, that there wasn't an option available for them. And, you know, they were also having poor uh, financial advice given to them. So, you know, some some athletes, I think a lot of them get a bad rap for, you know, making it rain in the club and buying Ferraris, et cetera. But there's a good number that are asking the right questions and just not in the hands of the right person to get the good answers. Um, I was trying to be responsible with my earnings uh, all throughout my career, and I just didn't have good people around me to help me be responsible. So I probably made less mistakes than the guy who buys the Ferrari, but I still made mistakes because I didn't have good counsel on my team. Well, it's good that you've, with you having that experience, you're able to counsel others on how to make proper financial decisions. And it's definitely something that's needed in today's society where it's so consumer driven and people 
kind of they see something and they want it or people that are very impulsive is important sometimes you want to put those wants on hold for a minute so that way you can save and as they say do what's hard right now so later on it'll get easier for you so that's very important that you're counseling them and helping them out tremendously so speaking of uh, financial planning you have a podcast about getting people ready to plan ahead tell the listening audience out there about your podcast yeah, so my podcast is called Worth Listening, and, you know, it's kind of in line with my company, Worth Winning, um, but really the premise of the podcast is to get people talking about money. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as society is we don't discuss financial topics, period. Uh, you know, it comes time to talk about finances, and everybody gets all on edge and very uncomfortable, and they start, you know, your eyes start darting around, and you just don't talk about it. Um, you're more likely to talk about your sex life with someone than you are to talk about your financial life. And I think that's just insane. Um, it's really, so the podcast, I, I interview guests. Um, some of them are young professionals and some of them are professional athletes. Uh, they're mostly people in their 20s and 30s. And they just come on and they simply tell their money story. And the idea behind it is to get the listeners feeling comfortable with having discussions around money. Everybody has their own story. Everybody makes some mistakes. But mistakes don't have to be catastrophic. Mistakes are something that you learn from, you, you move forward from, and, you know, you got to ditch this, the shame that comes with talking about money and finances and, and really open up and feel, uh, feel, this, feel the way that you can when uh, you, you're discussing with someone, you're having that back and forth banter, and you, you're able to have the strategy come out of that. It's not about, like, how much money do you make or how much money do you have in the bank. And I think that's what people mostly think of when they think of having a financial discussion. But it's really about, you know, what strategy are you using with your 401k? What is a 401k? Especially for young people, they don't know what that is or why they should be putting money in it or what the employer matches or, you know, like I said, a first-time home purchase. What strategy should I be using? How much should I get for a down payment? You know, a lot of people are trying to spend as little as possible, but you realize you got if you spend as little as possible up front, you pay more interest over the long term. So if you're not having those discussions, then how can you know and how can you avoid making uh, mistakes? So I think it's just really important to keep the discussion going. I love having people come on, tell their story, um, so that listeners can hear something that they can relate to. Um, so I'm always looking for guests and uh, other people in their 20s and 30s that are just willing to be open about their money story, good, bad, um, wonderful, ugly, or indifferent. Tell the listening audience out there, where can they find you on the social media platforms or a website? Definitely. My website is worth-winning.com. Um, and for, you know, the Olympian more personal side, it's lauren-williams.com. Um, and you can find me on social media at, at Lauren C. Williams on, you know, pretty much all the platforms. And then Worth Winning is all, on all the platforms as well. Uh, shouldn't be too hard to find if you go to worth-winning.com or worth, um, or sorry, lauren-williams.com. All the social media links are there as well. So I uh, look forward to connecting with others. Well, you heard it from her. She's financial planner, athlete, and also, just to want to pass this along real quick, she's the first American woman to medal in both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games, and she's only one of five athletes to do so. So certainly, not only did she do her thing in the athletic world, but now she's doing her thing in the business world to let people know how to make better choices in their finances. Lauren, thank you so much for being on the program, and we got to do this again real soon. I am happy to have been on the program, and I hope to be able to come back. So thanks for having me, Ed. All right. You heard it from her first. That's Lauren Williams. We'll be back with more of The Robinson Show right after this. You stay tuned.
Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com. Don't forget to follow the Sports Talk with Friends Facebook page and tune into the Sports Chatter Show every Friday at 7 p.m. on blogtalkradio.com. Fridays at 7 p.m. on the Sports Chatter Show on Blog Talk Radio. That's going to do it for this week's show. I'm yours truly, Ed Robinson. And remember, put God first in everything you do and you can't go wrong. Until next time, stick to the script. I'm out. Peace. Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.